they told me to turn it on when I came on the stage, and we were still singing, so I knew not to turn it on then. And I was hoping there would be a few more courses as well. Now, today's December the 1st, and you know what that means. 24 more days until Christmas. Now, if that makes you just a little bit nervous or a little bit of pressure, I just invite you to go to our website, go back and look up the um, No Worries series that Mark just completed, and he's got some good advice on handle, how to handle stress during the holidays. The only problem was he didn't cover everything. I knew he didn't have enough time to do that, and there was one in particular that I was looking for because it's the area where I have the most stress, but he didn't cover it. It has to do with decorating your house, outdoor decorations. <laughs> Does anybody really like to decorate the outside of their house? I'm going to have to talk to him about that. Uh, see, I, I, Linda is a decorator. She loves to decorate, and she's good at it. Every time she, de and she decorates for all occasions, and she decorates, and I enjoy it, but when it comes to Christmas, she expects me to do something with the outside of the house, and I am not a decorator. Uh, for me, I could get a couple of green and a couple of red bulbs and put them in my uh, porch light, and I'm done. <clears throat> but that's not the way Linda sees it. In fact, this is her perspective on what a house looks like. <laughs> And that's a, that's a properly decorated house. When I get through, it looks more like this. And frankly, that was one of my better years. So it, it, no, no doubt, there's a lot of stress. My stress over that starts at about my birthday, which is in early August, and doesn't end until this is done. And there's also, it leads to a lot of silent nights around our house. And, and that has nothing to do with the Christmas carol. Now, it also, December 1st is something else. Mark has mentioned a couple of times that he's going to start a new series for the month of December. Uh, it's going to be called Incarnation Celebration. And so, in, to be consistent with the theme, he asked that I do something with the birth of Christ. And so, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look at the birth of Jesus. Now, I know some of you are, will want to ask me a question, so let me go ahead and answer it now so I won't have to answer it several times throughout the, the morning afterwards. And that is, do I believe that Jesus was born in December, and particularly on December 25th? And the answer to that is no, I do not. I don't know what day he was born on, but I do know this, he was born on a day. And it was, I recognize it as the most important and the most amazing birth in all of history. In fact, um, we date all events in our history, and we base them on how they relate to that, to that birth. We, everything is either B.C. or A.D. And so it, is, it has become the central of our whole history, as well it should be. So focusing on the birth of uh, Jesus in December, even though it's not the right month, still seems, uh, seems to make sense to me. For one thing, the door of opportunity to discuss Jesus is open a little wider at that time of the year. People who give little thought to Jesus throughout the year are more inclined to listen and talk about him and think about him at this time. So why wouldn't we want to take advantage of that opportunity? So we will this morning, but I will say that it's going to be a bit different because we typically look at it through a historical perspective with just the facts. Um, and what I would like to do today is I want to take a different perspective on the birth of Jesus. I would like to look at it from, the, from heaven's perspective. 
How did heaven view that? Because it's totally different. And you say, well, how do you know? Well, we're given. We're given a perspective on it. And we'll go to a place that we typically don't go to um, for a Christmas story. And that's the book of Revelation. I know as soon as I say that, some get brain freeze. Um, For many, this is a book that's largely ignored. It's too difficult, has strange images, it's impossible to understand. And for many, the last book in the New Testament is Jude. And all those pages that are after Jude, you just kind of staple them all together because you're not going there anyway. But I was given some advice years ago which helped me and maybe it'll help you. Um, And that is Revelation is told in a series of pictures. And when you look at a picture, don't try to put a meaning on every little thing within the picture. Rather, stand back and look the picture as a whole. When you look at it as a whole, you'll see what it means, usually very easily, and that's generally as much theology as you need to get out of it to really get something out of the book. So what I'd like for you to do, I'm going I'm to read out of Revelation chapter 12 and out of a real Bible, uh, no device, going old school today. And as I read this, I, I put up the verses that I'll be reading, but I didn't include the text, and the reason I didn't Uh, If you want to follow along, you've got a Bible and you want to do that, that's fine. Or if you want to use your device, that's fine. But since it's told in picture form, I think maybe sometimes the best is just to sit back and listen. And and as it's read, try to visualize what it is, that that, what you see in that picture. So here goes. I'm going to start reading from verse 1 in in chapter 12. "A A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown with twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child. The moment it was born. Didn't read that very well. About to devour the child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was was hurled down the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, when we typically think of the birth of Christ, most of our pictures that we see are very tranquil, uh, peaceful events. And our songs all suggest that. We sing Silent Night, where all is calm. When the baby awakes, no crying he makes. Even the animals are seen in a state of peaceful wonder as they look on this child. But that's not heaven's perspective. From heaven's perspective, the birth of Jesus was seen as the launching of God's assault on the power of Satan and evil. It's the start of a war that God prophesied would come long ago. On December 7, 1941, Sunday morning at 7 a.m., Bombs were dropped on Pearl Harbor, and that led to war. And the outcome of that war would determine our future. Now, on an unknown day, 
at an unknown time. A child was born in Bethlehem, and that event started a spiritual war in heaven, and the outcome of that war would change our eternity. The first picture we see is the woman herself. She's great, and she's in pain because she's about to have a child. And it's not just any child. This is a child that will rule the world, rule everything with an iron scepter. All nations. Now, who would this child be? As we look at that big picture, it's pretty clear they're talking about the Christ. So this is the birth of Jesus they're talking about. The second figure, that's a ferocious, powerful, and frightening dragon. The dragon is waiting on the woman to deliver that baby so that the dragon can kill the baby immediately. And we see that scene played out in Matthew chapter 2, where there Satan uses Herod to get Herod to try to kill the baby child. And he said all of the, chil- all of the male children under age of two born you know, that were in and around Bethlehem would be killed in an effort to do that. But God's not going to let that happen. Bob, God snatches him away because he's not going to be frustrated with his plan. And so then, who is the dragon? Well, we don't have to guess on that one because in verse 9 in the text, we see he's named. He was the devil or Satan. Those names we're familiar with, but notice there's another one in there. He was called the ancient serpent the one that led the whole world astray. Now, that specifically is used because that's supposed to take our minds back to another event that happened a long time ago. In that event, we go back to Genesis 3, all the way back to the very beginning. Because you remember Satan, because of he was so de- deceiving and lying, and he introduced sin into the garden. And as a result of that, they had to be expelled from the garden. But before God kicks them out of the garden, because of the sin, he calls all three together, Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And he has a conversation with them. And this is what he has to say to that serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, enmity is not a word we use very much. Uh, probably a good thing, but it's, it's a word that means that it's uh, hostility. It's deep hostility. In fact, it borders on hatred. You know, so there's great tension here in that word. You put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Not language that you would use to describe a happy, peaceful, calm event but words that you would use to describe great tension and conflict and war. God had his plan on how to redeem uh, his creation before they ever left the garden. From the very beginning, he knew exactly what was going to happen, and he knew it would eventually come down to his son being born, and that son would be going to war with Satan to overcome him. He knew that was coming, and he predicted it from the very beginning. He, then he went on in, a, in Genesis chapter 12, he tells Abraham that this male child that's coming to do that, he's going to come through your seed. It's going to come through Abraham. And they looked forward to that. They looked forward to having the, a time when a king would come to destroy their enemies and establish a great nation that would rule forever. The only problem is they never looked at it from the heaven's perspective. They never looked at it from a spiritual perspective. That was all physical for them. So when they thought about destroying enemies, they thought about Egypt you know, they thought about Assyria, Babylonians, or the Romans, wherever they were in history. That's who this Messiah would come and defeat. And to establish a physical nation, that was never God's intent. His intent was to, 
to destroy our one true enemy, who is Satan, and to establish a kingdom, the church, that would last forever. That was his intent. But they didn't quite get that, and they taught that promise to their children, and they taught it to their children's children, and then they taught it to the next generation, and the next, and it goes on and on and on for centuries. From the time Abraham received that promise until Bethlehem is about 1,500 to 2,000 years later. That's how long it, it lasted. And eventually, those descendants of Abraham became so numbed with time, they knew, the, they knew the promise, they knew the prophecy, but they lived as if it had never been given. It made no difference in their life. They'd lost all sense of expectation that it was going to happen anytime soon. And one of the reasons they missed it when it did come. And it makes you wonder, since God had the plan in mind, and, it would, and after all this time, they would begin to forget, why did he wait so long? Why didn't it happen a lot sooner? And for that answer, we can go to Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The simple answer was, the time wasn't right. The time just wasn't right. See, God waited until everything was perfect, until everything was exactly the way it should be, and then he brought the child in. God does not rush. It's on your insert there. God does not rush. He never gets in a hurry. We, we do, and most of our mistakes come when we get in a hurry, right? And, and, but God never hurries. And why should he? I mean, he's eternal. Time means nothing to him. But perfection means something to him. And he had the perfect plan, and he had a perfect execution that was, I mean, his, he had a perfect execution, and he did it flawlessly. Jesus came down from heaven on a mission, not one day late, not one day early. God's timing was, is, and always will be absolutely perfect. That's a hard one for us. It's a hard one for me. Because we, I think, nearly all of us at one time or another has felt like God was late. Or that God's timing was off on that one. Because we think we know exactly what we need. And not only what we need, but we know when we need it. But God sees things differently. And he's perfect. And he will answer and he will do it his way. We can't rush him. And it's a good thing we can't. Because he's entered in, in perfection. And in this case, God is a faithful promise keeper. One thing you can count on, I don't care how much time lapses or what happens in history, <clears throat> when God makes a promise, he will fulfill it. Sooner or later, God will fulfill that promise. He is a faithful promise keeper. And God didn't forget the promise. Most of Abraham's descendants did. Very few were still looking for him at the time he was born. Most of them did. But isn't it ironic that Satan remembered as well? He's there in the vision right there waiting. He knows God's faithful. He knows God's going to keep his promise. And he knew that it was going to be war and he was going to fight for his life. That's why he was so intent on trying to kill that child from the very beginning. And when that day came, it brought spiritual warfare. <clears throat> in John 3, 8, it says, The devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then listen, the reason the Son of God appeared was to draw, destroy the devil's work. That's the reason Jesus was born, in order to destroy the devil's work. And like most wars, this spiritual war was fought, fought over freedom, and our freedom. Because our situation was hopeless. 
we were in chains to Satan because all of us sin and all of us fall short of God's glory. And as a result, we are sentenced to death. That was our situation. There was nothing we could do about it. We are not strong as Satan. He's too strong for us to escape or to get away from. Our, we could do nothing, but God is way too strong for Satan. And so God takes his son and sends him to this earth in order to deliver us. But Jesus came, became a destroyer before he became a deliverer. He came to deliver us, but he couldn't deliver us until he first became a destroyer and destroyed the enemy. That's what God said would happen, that he would crush his head. And he had to do that. So Jesus came to this earth as a warrior, as a warrior king. To, to gain victory for us. Jesus came down on a, in, on a mission to destroy and crush the enemy. So every temptation that Jesus faced, every obstacle that Satan put in his way, every frustration and disappointment that came his way, all those were battles that he fought with Satan. And he won every one because he not once sinned. He won every battle against him. And then the final battle, the battle that crushed Satan, the battle that took all his power away, the battle that was the end of the war, that brought the end, that battle was the empty tomb. And now it says that there is now, now no condemnation. I love those two words, no condemnation. Think about that. Now because of this empty tomb and because of this great victory and because of defeating Satan, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because of because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The chains have been broken, our enemy's been crushed, and we're free to escape Satan and death. And it's not because we don't sin anymore. It's not because he protects us from sinning. We still sin. But the problem, but now when we sin, we're not condemned for that sin. Because the sin that we commit has already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And so Satan can do nothing with us now. Can't control us any longer. And that's why it was said um, in, in, the, in our vision about verse 8 or 9, it says that he was hurled to earth and the angels with him, and he was furious. It said that he also said that he lost his place in heaven and was cast down. Now, the reference there to heaven is because heaven is where the throne is, and Satan was on the throne. Until, Jesus, until that empty tomb, he was on the throne as far as we were concerned. We were under his control. We were chained to him. But not anymore. That's been taken care of. So he's been thrown out of heaven. Now he's on earth, and he's furious about it. Don't think he's gone. Just because he's been defeated doesn't mean he's gone. He's still causing all the trouble he can cause. And he is, we should never underestimate his powers, his ability to, to deceive, and his ability to lie. And he continues to do that. He will use all the skills that he's got and give all the effort that he can give to convince as many people as possible, that they're really not free, that that freedom really is not true. He'll try to convince them to stay chained to him. But the truth is, we are free. In January of 1945, we were getting to the end of World War II, <clears throat> and the Americans were about to take back the Philippine Islands, and there was a prison camp that was there. All prison camps are bad. Some are worse than others, and this was one of the worst. And they went in to take, the, there were over 500 prisoners in that camp, and an army rangers went in and liberated them. And they were a bit surprised to find something. When they got there, a number of those folks, were, when they 
told the prisoners they were free, they wouldn't come out. They stayed in their barracks. They had to be coaxed out. And the reason was because they were so defeated, they were morally defeated, but they also had been psychologically defeated as well. And they were used to deceit, and they were used to lies, and they thought this couldn't be true. This must be, this must be a trick. And as soon as we make some effort to get out, we'll be punished some more and more severely. So they were fearful, and they wouldn't respond. One such person was a Captain Burt Bank. He was from Alabama, and that captain would not listen. He was nearly blind. He said he couldn't see, couldn't make out the people that were talking to him because of a vitamin deficiency while he was in the camp. So he couldn't see besides being physically a wreck as well. And people would come by and tell him, Captain, you're free, you can get out, but he would not move. Finally, a soldier went by and told him, he said, Captain, don't you want to be free? He said, you're free. You can get up and go. Go with me, and I'll take you out. You're free. Just come with me. And he did. A smile came on his face. He got up. He took the arm of that soldier, and they walked out to freedom. And they asked him later, well, why did you respond to that one and none of the others? It turned out that that particular soldier was from Georgia, from the Deep South. And Bert said, I heard a voice I could trust. Well, you know, Jesus is a voice you can trust. And Jesus says, you're free. Follow me. Just take my arm and come on out. And he can be trusted. See, the Christmas story, to me, the real Christmas story, starts with a virgin birth, and it ends with an empty tomb. And you've got to have them both. They bracket the story. You can't have the story without both of them. You wouldn't have an empty tomb if there was no birth. But without that empty tomb, there'd be no reason to celebrate a birth. No peace on earth, no joy to the world, no reason to embrace the little town of Bethlehem, to remember it. And we would be in the same condition after the birth that we were before without that empty tomb, chained to Satan. So the birth started it, but the celebration didn't come until, the, until V-Day, the victory, and that's the empty tomb. And our freedom came at a high price. War is costly. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of pain. Demands a lot of personal sacrifice and courage. And Jesus did all of that and more. All we have to do is look at the cross. Look at the time before the cross in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you see how much suffering and pain that he had to pay. And not only that, something else. In that verse that's very familiar to us. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a humble being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died on a, a criminal's death on a cross. Most religions in the world today offer some path or something that we can do to move to God and go to God. Christianity is not like that. Christianity says, no, you can't go to God. You've got sin. So what God did is God came to us. Jesus left heaven and came to us in order to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He, and the amazing thing, Jesus in Colossians, we know that he, he created everything. And just think he created. The creator became created in order to do that, to come down. He himself became created and came as a human in order to sacrifice for us. Um, God's love for us is limitless, as we can see. 
There was nothing that he wouldn't pay and do, and he did it all. It's limitless. And from heaven's perspective, uh, it's a very different story. There won't be, it's not likely you're going to get any Christmas cards with that perspective on it. It's not likely that Hallmark is going to make any movies to come out about Christmas from this perspective. It's not likely when you go to some of the children's plays that you're going to get this perspective because it's different. From heaven's perspective, it was very different. War is dark, and war is hard, and war is tough. But you know what? God's love shines brightest in darkness. And so I think sometimes I see God's love deeper in looking at heaven's perspective than our typical perspective. And then the last thing that Jesus did while he was on earth, he took his disciples and they went out and had a little conversation with them. And then after he got through, he started rising up and going into the heavens. And those disciples stood there and watched. And they watched till he disappeared and they continued to watch, looking. And then two angels came to him and said this, Men of Galilee, why do you start here looking in the, uh, stand here looking in the skies? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've, been, you've seen him go into heaven. The great promise keeper has made another promise. And he said he's going to come back. And just like his birth, we don't know the date, and we don't know the time. But just as sure as Jesus came to earth the first time, when the time is right, and God's timing is always perfect, when it's right, he's going to come again. But this time it's going to be a little bit different. This time he's not going to come. This time he's not going to come as a destroyer to destroy an enemy. He's not going to become as a deliverer to deliver anyone. He's going to come as a gatherer to collect all those that have trusted him and put their faith in him. And for all those that have been united with him and carry his spirit, he's going to come and take them home. That's how he's coming the next time. Now, from the time this ascension took place until now, it's a little over 2,000 years. So we need to be careful and not be like Abraham's descendants who allow our brains to be numbed by time and to begin to think the promise isn't real. We need to live every day with the realization that that's a fact. Never lose our sense of expectation. Rather, this promise should affect how we live every day. We need to ask ourselves every day, are you ready? And if you can answer yes, then let me tell you, you're going to have a Merry Christmas every day of the year. But if you're not and you can't say yes, then we're going to sing a song. And there's going to be some men up here, and they can help you with that. Because there's no reason that everyone can't leave here today ready for that coming. Let's stand and sing. Oh, wonderful, wonderful day. Yeah, I will never <laughs> 